Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. This is Ned Buskirk. That's N-E-D, bus as in school bus, and Kirk, just like Captain Kirk. That's that's what I say. They want to know how to spell my name? That's what I say, everybody. And yeah, Ned comes from Edward. It's a nickname. Just like Bob comes from Robert and Dick comes from Richard. Once I was waiting tables... <laughs> Uh, many years ago, I was 18. I went up to a table. These two guys introduced myself, said, my name's Ned. I asked them if they wanted, you know, a drink to start. And they said, well, before we go any further, we're wondering where you get the name Ned from. And I said, well, my full name's Peter Edward. And Ned comes from Edward, like a nickname, just like Bob comes from Robert and Dick comes from Richard. And these two guys didn't say anything. They just sat quietly and looked at each other. And then they looked at me and said, what we want to know is how you knew both of our names. And it was Bob and Richard. Oh, boom. Seriously, I asked them to show me their driver's licenses. They proved it. Wow. I mean, is your mind blown Welcome to another episode, everybody. <laughs> I mean, it's already worth your while for that story. Ooh, forward this to your friends. This is an episode that's worth sending to your friends for a lot better reasons than that. I guess I was introduced to BJ Miller over five years ago, maybe eight years ago. I don't even think I saw his TED talk first. I think I saw a talk somehow given at a school. I haven't even been able to find what I saw. All I know is I was sitting on my couch near my wife and I was watching him speak and I got the chills because of how much I was feeling about what he was saying, not just his knowledge about the facts of death and dying, but there was something else too. I do think it was like me feeling at a very early stage that I think was kind of getting ahead of myself, not knowing really what you're going to die would become, where I had this feeling that I would, I would end up getting to work with BJ. And our orbits have crossed repeatedly because of this death and dying work that we both are involved in and connected to in very different ways, but also in some kind of bizarrely unique circumstances that don't have anything to do with death and dying ways that we would just run into each other. Once coming back from a trip with my family, I got in this shuttle with my kids and my wife, and there was only one other person in the shuttle taking the shuttle to get our cars. And it was BJ Miller. I've run into him like that just very coincidentally, but also has had some meaning to it for me because of how much I respect him. And, and I don't, I really mean to say not as a doctor in palliative care, not just that, not just his work in that. 
It's also who he is. When I've heard him talk, how he's made me feel, the peace from how he speaks and how he holds himself and his, his presence. So it means a lot to be able to share this episode with you. And nice for me to have it as a touchstone to return to. These episodes have been really sweet to re-listen and revisit the conversations I've had with our guests. And this one is no exception. Dr. B.J. Miller is a longtime hospice and palliative medicine physician and educator. He currently sees patients and families via telehealth through Metal Health, M-E-T-T-L-E, a company he co-founded with the aim to provide personalized, holistic consultations for any patient or caregiver who needs help navigating the practical, emotional, and existential issues that come with serious illness and disability. BJ has given over 100 talks nationally and internationally on the topics of death, dying, palliative care, and the intersection of healthcare with design. His 2015 TED Talk, Not Whether, But How, also known as What Matters Most at the End of Life, has been viewed over 11 million times, and his work has also been the subject of multiple interviews and podcasts, including Oprah Winfrey, PBS, the New York Times, the California Sunday Magazine, Goop, Krista Tippett, Tim Ferriss, and the TED Radio Hour. And his book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, was co-authored with Shoshana Berger and published in 2019. Real happy to share this wonderful conversation with you with one of the favorite people that I've had the pleasure of meeting doing this death and dying work, someone who's really impacted my own journey and unfolding in this mortality conversation. So I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with BJ Miller. Fascinating, Ned. Lately, a lot of the conversations I've been having with folks, they're clearly agonizing under that they, they need to get it right. They, the patient or family, need to impress me or say the right thing or get it right, get an A in this, but somehow that turn it into a performance, that they're playing their role and they're playing it well. Ooh, yeah. Of course, that sort of expectation and that reductive kind of lens and that sort of strategic kind of mind frame almost immediately pulls me anyway out of a sacred zone. So we got to quickly attend to that and make sure everyone knows that we can throw up on each other if we need to. There's no, <laughs> right, right. There's no rules. There's no, <laughs> this is not something you succeed at or fail at. So some way or another, I got to set, get that across too, to make the space. But, it reminds yeah. me though, it's like the, the way I feel that sometimes maybe a medical professional might default on the side of filling the role more because they're they're mm-hmm. wanting to be careful maybe to be affected. I mean, you, I'm glad you mm-hmm. put words to the like, I have to pay attention in some ways, maybe the word boundaries, but also that kind of um, caution or uh, intention that is aware of how things can sweep you away. 
from what the patient or whatever family or friends are there are going through. And it, it almost feels like, yeah, I guess everybody maybe has that default of I'm in a role here. And that in some ways, that's mm-hmm. a can we just step away from what's really mm-hmm. going on a little bit because it's too much. And if I can fulfill a role, then at least I know I just need to do that. Yep. Yeah. And there's no shame in that. I guess there's any problem would creep in is when you're not owning that. If you're not, you know, if you're not, you know, as a, as a convention roles, give us a, something of a script and give us some sort of structure and something to fall back on and a way to know what we're responsible for and what we're not responsible for, which could be very helpful before an enormous subject like that. Even if it's around the notion of sort of expectation management, um, so that's okay. I just think everyone needs to be transparent. Like I'll say things like, I may be your doctor, but you know, I'm this conversation, I'm a fellow human being. You know, I'll, I'll layer in some doctorly stuff as questions come up. But just so you know, I'm also here as a fellow human who doesn't know everything and who is mortal himself or something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, just sort of disclosing where you're coming from and making that explicit can be really, really respectful and helpful. And then you can, then you can sort of, you can stick within the bounds of that role. Or as you know, if you've set it up right, you can move in and out of those boundaries as needed. Yeah, I like that. There's this real, I would say, even specifically working organizationally, say going into a hospital, I won't name any particular hospital, but let's say I'm working in the context of a a hospital program. And I'm, I'm one, who is real near tears or their the the availability of that measurement of the proximity to truth it's just it's it's something that occurs and it happened today with this group mm-hmm. and i'm wondering about that i like that you put it that way that there could be a dance because i think what i've learned in the few years i've been doing hospital work in particular is this idea that it, it doesn't necessarily have to be hard and fast boundary that there could be a little more looseness sometimes so that what the patients need are you being human and maybe Mm -hmm. shedding tears with them, Mm -hmm. um, but also in a way that you're able to not central, you're not centering yourself in what's going on, but you're mirroring or reflecting what they're going through. Right on. And I think, yeah, that sounds right on to me, Ned. And, you know, and it's like, you know, that, that uh, it's okay to roll switch and perforate these lines. In fact, it's more than okay. It can be very constructive. And some of the most profound conversations I've ever had of when I've blown past this sort of conventional boundary. But that's a measured decision and there are risks involved. And there again, transparency and owning it. And sometimes if you've exceeded that, you can simply say to someone, hey, just back up and say, gosh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, 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 I'm confused. I'm mixed. I'm, I'm mm. switching between doctor. I, I, my own me as a human being, as a brother, as a son, whatever else, just own it, just name it. And simply say, yeah, I'm so sorry. Maybe it's not so helpful the way I'm kind of moving around here. And then you can talk it out. And then, then these little mistakes, quote unquote, very often end up being bonds because there's, there aren't great words for this subject. It's inherently clunky and tricky to talk about and how self and other meet up and, entwine is always kind of awkward and weird and wild and you know so here again i think a subtext for all of this stuff and what will keep it sacred is just a deep deep honesty 
Um, mm. So I think that's, to me, as we're talking, I think that's so much the key. And then within that framework, you can move around. You can be Ned the human. You can be Ned the volunteer. You can be Ned a professional. You can do all those things. You get to be all you. Just own it. I'm thinking about the specific time of entering a room when you're maybe needing to be direct. It's not <laughs> the it's it's the moment of this is really what we're dealing with. It, we're talking about inevitable death or dying some kind of news like that. And, and I wonder what the navigation is specifically with that. And maybe you've been talking about it all along, but I almost imagine you having that particular room entry, not every mm -hmm. room entry, like that particular one. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you can sort of describe the uniqueness of that. There's mm -hmm. a sense I have of you over the years and knowing your story by now that there's, poss I wonder if there's a possibility that you feel able to say what needs to be said because of your life experience um, and your work in a way that maybe even a lot of doctors don't aren't aren't um, grounded in or held by. Does that mm -hmm. sound familiar? It does. I mean, I definitely think my personal story. I mean, even before there was any public whatever public description of my my personal story, I was I this was this was very much how I functioned as a physician. Mm -hmm. um, and as a medical student too, all the way back, I've always, I went into medicine no, deliberately mm. bringing my personal story with me because it's because of my obvious disability. I mean, you just take a look at my body and you know, that's gone through something. Mm -hmm. So it seems too, it, it, it seemed important to me from the start to bring that into the mix, either explicitly or implicitly. So all the way through my training, et cetera, I've always different in, in ways different from a lot of my peers was coming at this, these clinical encounters and these big conversations from a slightly different angle. Mm -hmm. But I want to be clear, I don't, th so that's just, I've done that just from my own, just the way I've seen the world and my own experiences. But I want to be clear, like, you don't, it doesn't need to be drama. You know, it doesn't, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, missing three limbs is just very dramatic and very obvious. But I think the key here is, is not that we have this, it's not the spectacular nature of the vulnerability or the obviousness of the vulnerability. It's just that, that that residue of your having suffered, your having bumped up against things outside of your control, your having to uh, find the nugget that is you that's unchanging. Hmm. It's you that have had to invent persona on top of that nugget. You know, if you've done all that work, whether you have all your body parts or whatever, or no <laughs> diagnosis, that's what ultimately uh, is what I think shows. Mm. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of younger folks who feel like, gosh, they don't have any obvious life experiences. How do they possibly go in these conversations? And it's pretty important to point everyone back to big or small, we all have access to the world beyond our control. And so it's on each of us, especially if we're going to try to enter the sort of therapeutic roles with people in healthcare or outside of healthcare, that we have to, that that's our big teacher. Not only that's something that we could forgive a clinician or a healthcare provider or a caregiver bringing to the mix, but there's nothing to forgive here. No, this, this is not an aside. This is this human dance we're talking about. So this is, 
So yeah, bringing all of your experience to bear explicitly mm. or implicitly is what really matters. And it'll show up in the sensitivities that you bring to the picture. It'll show up in when you hold silence. It'll show up in the way you don't posture if you don't know an answer. Mm. Um, these are the sort of ways it shows, I hope, much more than just the silhouette of missing body parts. <laughs> right. Um, so I, that should be accessible good. to any adult yes. human being who's been around the, on the planet for more than a few hours. Yeah, I uh, I really appreciate that. It makes me I've wondered about for you feeling that question or questions around this part of your life story. And mm. it's such a tender way to say, yeah, OK, we'll talk about that. I want you know, I understand that it's something that can be addressed and powerfully and valuably. Mm -hmm. But also, let's not forget and say in a way I like the decentering there too, where it's like, yeah, I mean, we all have this. We all have the capacity for taking what we've lived through and bringing it to others, even if it is mm. as simple as listening, because we understand to a, you know, to a person a certain thing that they're going through, no matter what. Um, yeah. As mortals, fellow mortals, we have that capacity yeah. if we let ourselves. If we let ourselves, and I think you, you got to own the rawness, that means being this way and not not scripted. Because I think authenticity, another subtext here, again, honesty, authenticity, being real, means you know not knowing a bunch of stuff and being you know so and so that that's that's not ignorance. That's just being honest before life's mysteries. So that's all fine. So I think there's a sort of confidence to a way that any of us can hold all the things we don't know. It's almost like a confidence. Of, you can hold your insecurities with confidence in a way. If that doesn't sound um, too mixed up of a sentence. I really believe that. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really powerful demonstration to a fellow human being who's in free fall is like, hey, you can be yourself, you can be whole, and you being you doesn't, it can include uncertainty, it include not knowing. Um, I think we get convinced, we get seduced into thinking that a personality is something of conviction and knowing, and that person really knows themselves. And Yeah, okay, well, fine, but knowing yourself may be knowing that you don't know much. <laughs> so you just gotta, just gotta hold all that too. Yeah. Um, but you know, you bring up something funny, just like, I have to, I do want to kind of rethink how I answer the question about my own story. I, for the first, first go these whatever years of being of of having an opportunity to talk with people in a public way, I've tried to just be respectful, and I know people have questions about my story, so I'm happy to answer them, even if mm -hmm. I've talked about it a zillion times. But you know, I have regrets around that too, and I think it's time for me to start actually pointing the conversation rather than just being responsive to whatever's being asked of me. Mm. I have some real regrets about some bigger interviews where I didn't do that. I was just out of deference, out of respect. I just answered the question asked, and I ended up it, it that my story can end up can go from a way in and a conversation starter to becoming the point or the conversation in its entirety, which is ultimately a big mistake that's mm. not the point my story is a variation on theme and my story is not just my story you want to talk about my injuries and what it talked to how what it took to survive them i need to talk about everyone but me i need to talk about all the help i got and that, that rarely comes up and so i i, I do I, I appreciate actually you mentioning this because it saying this out loud with you on in a recording will help me kind of remember this. I got to start moving people through the story in a different way versus just at, just, just answering the question on face. 
Does that, does that make sense? Totally. I mean, I'm just grinning here because I, (laughs) I mean, I'm so, I appreciate your vulnerability and your, your just willingness to say, Oh, I'm noticing this. And, and, and that that's always going to be a part of your journey that you haven't arrived somewhere 10 years ago. And so now you're this touchstone of wisdom, which I imagine people kind of project all over you though. (laughs) And I've, you know, I I would admit that even I have had moments like that. I guess the way I'd thought about it over these years and, and even maybe on anticipating getting to talk to you someday about it was the assumption that it was even frustrating maybe, which I don't get that sense. It sounds like you just have very naturally learned, okay, I can be with this question and a lot and a lot more, Mm -hmm. especially as you become more high profile and in your work. And then in the midst of that, still be paying attention to, oh, I fell into that pattern answering Mm -hmm. that question. And I like to shed that and move on to to this. Uh, I really, I appreciate that a lot. Really feeling grateful for that. Yeah. Thank you, bud. That'll help me make it real. Yeah. I have some big time regrets around that opportunities lost in a bigger form to really push the conversation in a different way. So, Mm -hmm. so anyway, thanks for giving me some space to to think that loud with you. And I I do need to make this real. So I'll work on it. Totally. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, BJ. Um, I, I wonder about doctors that when you're in the way you're describing being with patients in their communities, what I think we're all aware of is that the work of healthcare is a let's fix and take, like get this taken care of so that you're good and you can go out into the world and say, I went there and was taken care of and fixed and I'm not dead. And how often doing the particular work you do in palliative care pushing back like do you feel that is there times when you've met a doctor who's like i don't agree (laughs) i'm sure you have (laughs) but i don't agree at all with that approach like we need to have all the answers and maybe they don't Mm -hmm. say that outright but Mm -hmm. you have this sense that that's a part of the work and and it's cultural too i don't think it's just our healthcare system but this idea that here's the answer success looks like figuring it out success Mm -hmm. looks like figuring it um Mm -hmm. when really maybe even more because of the particular context you work in. And something that came up this morning with my group is this power of really listening and being with truth. Mm. We're not here at some point. We need to acknowledge we're not here to fix anything Mm. that we're here to hold what's happening. Mm -hmm. We have this. Yeah. Sorry. Did I just cut you off, Ned? No, no, I was, that's, that's the end of that thought. Yeah, no, it's a really good, good question here too, brother. This is, there's, you know, to kind of deepens this kind of equation because it's in my field of palliative care, there is an inborn criticism of healthcare. Um, there, it, 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 you know, palliative care in so many ways shouldn't be a subspecialty. We're talking about some pretty fundamental things, but the fact that palliative care had to come around and name itself and, and build itself as a discipline, as a field that embraces the human experience, embraces the subjective realm that sees itself as holding space rather than trying to evince an outcome. You know, that's a, those are important distinctions the way the rest of healthcare is wired. They're not important distinctions the way humans in the world are wired. Palliative care is, a, is, is stunning or is, is extraordinary only in reference to the backdrop of healthcare and mm-hmm. as, as it's as it's evolved in the 20th and now 21st centuries, so that so it's there's it's tricky and um, you know I do think you know I, I think another part of answer to your response to your question is 
yeah, there is a time and a place for like, no, we, we are actually battling disease, right? Mm-hmm. Now. This is a war to get someone through over a hump. There is an acute need here. I, um, so there is, there is a time and a place for fighting. There is a time and a place of pushing back on nature. There is a time and a place to really sacrifice some things in the name of the potential of a cure. Um, the trick, I think, is simply is we don't need to def- de- de- defile those impulses. They're powerful. I, <laughs> I am alive because doctors and nurses and a whole team of people <laughs> right. took that mentality with me. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, amen. I think it's a lazy conversation in palliative care circles, and we have to be very, very careful that we're not implying that, you know, I'm in no way invested in death or invested in a person not being fixed. Mm. I just, my job is to make sure to acknowledge that there is life and value beyond the cure moment, that eventually we're all incurable. And even along the way, even if there's something out there that can fix a problem, um, some of us may not be interested in the fix. And that's fine, too. It all has to be fine. It all has to fix. Nothing can be carved out of this big subject. So there's a time and a place for curing and there's a time and a place for caring beyond the cure. And it should. And so and when the conversation devolves into it's one or the other, if, if, if we're in a healthcare setting and sort of fighting for this piece of the puzzle, if you're not careful, you end up suggesting that the fix it mentality or the fight mentality or the cure mentality is wrong. It's not wrong. It just it's context specific and it needs to be contextualized as not always possible. And that I, doctor person, I'm gonna I'm not gonna abandon you just because my fix doesn't work or you don't want my fix. That's that's it. We just have to acknowledge there's we have to it's sort of another one of those both and not either or moments. Everybody, um, hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I just wanted to take a couple minutes to say a couple words from our um, sponsor, um, Coracao Chocolate. I'm, I'm literally—I'm not sure I've done this yet. I'm literally taking one of the chocolates out right now. This is—I've uh, said this before. It's my favorite kind. It's a Berkeley bar. I'm salivating. Literally, I want to walk you through a play by play. I'm salivating right now, about to eat <laughs> eat this while I'm recording. Um, the Berkeley bars, caramel, nougat, and almonds, 81% dark chocolate, net weight two ounces, 56 grams. Um, I'm gonna take a bite of this. Oh, oh man. Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh, I didn't want you to hear all the salivate, the salivating. Well, that's it. Now it's, you're just like, I don't, this isn't supposed to gross you out. It's so good. It's so, so good. You guys, Coracal Chocolate is our sponsor, I'm proud to say. 
I more than happily ate that and am eagerly awaiting the chance to eat the other half of what I just bit into. That vegan, allergen-free, fair trade chocolate and sugar-free cane sugar and refined white sugar-free chocolate. Quickest thing to do is if you started salivating, hopefully you didn't get grossed out, but if you started salivating and you want chocolate and you want good chocolate and you love good chocolate and you know you deserve good chocolate, just let's keep this simple. Go to coracaochocolate.com, C-O-R-A-C-A-O chocolate.com. Go to their website, choose from their wide selection of wonderful options. And they also have cacao drinking chocolate. So they have two brands, Curacao chocolate and cacao drinking chocolate, which is a whole nother wonderful thing. You have to listen to some of the older episodes to hear me salivate about that. But fill your cart with as much as you possibly can imagine getting and then use our code chocolate, the word chocolate two zero, chocolate 20, the number two and zero. And you'll get 20% off of everything that you ordered. So go and do that now. Support Curacao Chocolate, supporting us. And yes, all of Curacao's products are 100% vegan and made in a dedicated vegan facility. That means no dairy and no other animal products ever. And yes, none of their products contain soy, dairy, gluten, or peanuts. And yes, their chocolate is fair trade. Many of the farms they work with are certified fair trade. Some of the farms are too small to afford the expense, certification process, and fees. So in those cases, they ensure that the farms meet or exceed fair trade requirements, something they do for those farms to make sure the quality that they're getting to you is the highest. I feel excited that you're going to know what I mean. After you go to curacaochocolate.com, use the code CHOCOLATE20 and find out for yourself. I am wondering if you've seen the movie Sound of Metal. Have you seen it yet? Have you seen it yet? I can't hear you. This is a recording. <laughs> this is a recording. I can't hear you, but it's still fun to ask questions sometimes because I do imagine you. I do. Just my mind is populating many versions of you listening to this now. And you're there. And you just nodded yes or shook your head or said out loud, nope, haven't seen it. Well, whether you have or not, I've been thinking a lot about it. I do recommend it. I don't want to say too much. I'll say one thing for sure is the main character loses his hearing. And that happens pretty early on in the film, like pretty much right away. And he also is in a band with his girlfriend, kind of like a metal band, which I would say maybe that's where the title comes from. But I also have questions about that. I'm not sure. I can't talk again too much about it. But I will say that one thing I've been thinking about, the pocket of peace 
the silent quietness that we all carry around with us. And I feel like hopefully there's some of that offered up in an episode like this. And the shows that we offer, the episodes that we offer, trying to create that with these little moments in the middle of the episode, which we've fondly named, I might have just done this on my own, the meditation, meditation, um, <laughs> the meditation moment. You've reached it again. You've reached it again, everybody. And I want to just say and remind myself as you're breathing right now, you can try it on too. To remind myself of that stillness that I carry, the peace, the kingdom of God, I think is the quote from the movie that we always have with us. That stillness, that settling, the presence of being. I just can hardly keep track of it. I rarely remember, but I'm trying to more. And I feel like part of that is coming from leading these workshops and doing a lot more space holding than ever before. And for which I'm glad, of course, there's going to be a kickback of value on my life. How can I say, get present and here's how, if I'm not really familiar with doing that myself. But I, I do offer that up today, a chance to get present. If this podcast hasn't already done that, maybe this moment in the podcast could. I asked BJ if he wouldn't mind sending a little quote unquote piece of his universe. That's P-E-A-C-E. -E. I asked him if he wouldn't mind recording a little audio, a little atmospheric sound from from there and he happily obliged joyfully and so i want to share that with you now per usual that recording held well by nick jana's sound engineering and music but let yourself catch your breath here and if you, like I do, need a reminder of what you carry with you always, see if you can find it at the end of a breath, in between an inhale and an exhale, maybe especially in between an exhale and an inhale. Can you feel that resting place at the end of letting your breath out? I even give it that much attention, I feel more at peace than before.
independence in community. I mean, that's a, there's a, there's a paradox in there. I mean, we can be independent, relatively independent or relatively autonomous within the context of community, etc. In other words, to, to sign up for community, not that we need to sign up for it. It's a natural piece of how humans function in this world. But to choose community, to choose a communal f- lens here again, it's a false divide. That doesn't mean you have to abandon your individual your idiosyncrasies, your personality, your persona, your own autonomy. Um, you know, there's a, there should be a fluidity between my inner life and my outer life, a fluidity between myself and other, a fluidity between my individual persona and the community. They're all entwined. They all, they all, they're all in the mix. Um, so I, I guess one response to your point here is to just make sure we all like, yeah, you get to be you, even if you're talking about you within community. It's not one or the other. Um, but so that's one point. Another point is to your, this idea about the myth of independence. I mean, I, this should be when I teach med students and stuff, uh, you know, this is this should be good news to you that you're you don't you can't you can't know everything. You need a team. If your subject mm-hmm. matter is suffering, the human condition, healing, no one person does all that by themselves. No mm-hmm. one person has the capacity or the talent to do all that by themselves. So that's not a problem. That's a relief. Thank God, right? Otherwise, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that sucks about being a doctor is the projections. You referenced it a little earlier. Yeah, I mean, we can say those damn doctors are so arrogant. They think they know it all. Well, <laughs> yeah, most of our public actually wants us to and are very disappointed when we don't know <laughs> right, it all. Right, and so right. there's, there's, there's a complex dynamic going on there. And it ain't yeah. just as simple as the doctors being jerks, um, not even remotely close. Hmm. So uh, we should own the tr- we should own the truth wherever we can. And the truth often means that none of us can do all this by ourselves. So. That is, if that takes wind out of your sails of trying to puff up and be some big independent doctor person, well, let it because you should, let, there should be some, you should, you know, that, that, that's an untenable position and you will hurt people from that position. Yeah. However, you want to acknowledge the truth of the limitations uh, of any one of us and work as a team and to know that if I can't get to something, I know my social worker will, or I know the chaplain will or whatever else that means so much of this job is is relationship building with other professionals, not just our patients and their families. And that's that's good news. That means the pressure's off. But that does mean we need to develop what it, like playing well with others too. Um, so yeah. that, anyway, there's a long rambling response to your question. No, that's heard, good right? though. I know I kind of like full disclosure sneakily tried to get at one of the things you wanted to talk about by pretending like it's something I came up with. But... Uh, <laughs> But I, I appreciate that it went like that, too, because you're talking, I think you maybe put it down as something you wanted to talk about because it's your experience in the healthcare context. But also I'm hearing wisdom for me, you know, this idea of how we hold space with community, how we don't have to do it alone. We are individuals, but we also are a part of a network of of living resources, whether it's through listening or getting support for a particular illness or some heartbreak. Um, it's just good good medicine to hear it put the way you just did. And, and for anybody, not just a doctor or yeah. us or a doctor to be. I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, amen. To, yeah. Did you have something else you wanted to add to that? 
Well, I think on this point of uh, the myth of independence, I do, and maybe it's been said, but yes, as you're saying, it has implications for us within community, within teams, within our roles, absolutely. But our own sense of self, our own, our own, where do we put our sense of confidence or, you know, where do we know that we are somehow really get to believe that we're enough, that we're adequate. Mm. And, um, Again, it's probably implied here, but just to say, you know, it's I, I, I um, it's it's sad. I, I struggle when I watch myself or others suffer just because of the facts of nature that we conflate or confuse um, natural truth with a, a shortcoming of my own. So, like mm. all our zeal and our languaging in this country for independence. It just really needs to be, we can, we can pursue independence, almost like the pursuit of happiness. You don't really ever get there. If you get there, you're not there for very long, (laughs) but there's something really important about the pursuit of Mm. it. So the pursuit of independence, fine. Just acknowledge somewhere for your own sense of safety, your own sense of self, your own sense of belonging in this world. It is not a weakness to rely upon others. It is a fact of nature. It's not, not only is it, not only is it okay to, you have to. So I think it's just a matter of right-sizing ourselves, whether as professionals or human beings, uh, because it's so important at the end of the day, when I look in the mirror, did I do okay today? Am I all right? Do I have something to forgive or ask mm-hmm. to seek forgiveness, etc.? It It was very helpful for me to daily remind myself that none, nobody is independent. That's setting myself up to fail spectacularly if I'm trying to be, if I'm trying to need no one. That's a recipe for failure. The, the link here, so an ex, let's define an existential exis, existential distress. I think uh, that is a phrase that means different things to different people. I've talked to a lot of people who think that's just a, that's like a neurotic, that's what neurotics do, or people of privilege have time for. Um, I totally disagree. I might mm. think if there's some, you know, to revisit like Maslow's hierarchy or some any other construct that sort of names the fundamentals of human experience. Well, I don't think there's anything more fundamental to the human experience than than meaning, than the role of either finding or making meaning in one's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, so just to say, I mean, I think existential distress is is probably the most one of the most common human experiences. I think if it's not, if someone has gone through their life and not had an existential crisis, they need to have one <laughs> because I don't think you're paying <laughs> yeah. close enough attention. <laughs> right. Um, so I think of an existential distress, existential distress as deeply fundamental, powerful lesson learned, like a teacher, powerful teacher, and a way, uh, in a way to plumb the connections that exist between human beings, no matter what our uh, culture or class, etc. So, uh, I, so just to contextualize existential crises, um, I think that that's the opportunity of our moment too. You know, I think a lot of us who have had our own private existential crises and then kind of re-entered the world, it's 
it's really tricky because the world is wired. Daily life has a pace, has a messaging, has agendas all over it that can gum up your own pursuit of meaning, your own finding meaning if we're not careful. And so one of the things that happens, I see it in myself and patients and families, they'll go through this existential crisis often in the form of illness or death. And it sucks. It's hard. They're sort of stripped of what they thought, but give enough time and support, they learn what what's underneath all that stuff, all their constructs, all the ego, all the made up stuff. And this is the opportunity of an existential crisis. And to a person with enough time and support, I, 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 everyone I've ever talked to, it's like me with my own injuries. Like, would I trade what I learned from my accident to have my limbs back? I mean, it's a silly question, but let's just, I'll, I'll roll with it for a second. And I yeah. think the answer is probably no. Mm-hmm, like I, mm-hmm. one way or another, we learn things from things that we don't, we can't choose and we don't choose. It'll put us, it'll pull us inherently out of our comfort zone. And that is powerful. That is the way we build our capacity. That is the way we right size ourselves. That is the way we see the world outside of ourselves. So, uh, but what ends up happening after these individual existential crises, private existential crises is, then people have to re-enter the workspace or whatever it is. And I just watched how a lot of this tender, these new openings shut back down. Um, um, or the, the experience is such a private one that it can't be shared with friends and colleagues. Whereas right now, we are all, if we choose to see it, in some amount of an existential crisis, thanks to the pandemic, thanks to the political divides. Thanks to uh, floodlights finally opening, uh, shining on social injustices in our fabric. You know, all of these things are huge, big, big forces, and they're uncomfortable, but they bring with them, as any existential crisis does, a, a clearing, a cleansing, and a new and new fresh eyes. And the shared existential crisis is so powerful because it doesn't. Versus a private one, this is, you don't have to be alone with your lessons. And there's, as we, as we head out, I'm getting a little farther afield here, but as we head out of the backside of the pandemic, and we're going to hear more and more this phrase of returning to normal. Well, any of us who've been through an existential crisis know you don't, there's no going back. So I want to be very suspicious. All of us need to be very suspicious about this idea of returning to normal uh, and ask ourselves, can we return where we were before? And would we even want to? Because here is an opportunity for us to make big, big changes for ourselves and for the structures of society. So anyway, that's a little plug for the moment, but also to make the point here that the existential issues are practical ones. The truth is you may walk through your day, you know, making plans for months and years down the road. But somewhere in you, you got to know that that months and years down the road may not happen. You may not get through today. That is a reality. That's not a hypothetical. Well, it is a hypothetical, I suppose, but that is a, rea- a real one. That is not. So the more, so if you can get in touch with that, then you will start making the parallel. You'll see the connections between your practical daily life and the world of meaning making of the existential mm-hmm. plane. Those are not opposed. They're not different. They're one and the same if you dare to see it as such. And that's there for the taking. Um, So and so that's a big rant on sort of existential plane and meaning making. But um, where I think dovetails with this first point about the myth of closure. Um, So the myth of closure, I usually find myself talking about that with folks um, 
when they're feeling the weight of a loss, but they're feeling down on themselves because they didn't, they didn't get that closure. And the assumption is that we all have rights to closure, that closure exists, and that if we didn't get it, we, lo- we, we were robbed of something. Um, I think if we're very honest about the nature of truth and of life and death and of how meaning gets created and generated and perpetuated, I think we all have to see nature, if just look around us. Nature does, there's no closure in nature. Uh, an ending is always a beginning of something else. The lines between self and other are, are naturally porous, much more porous than we treat them. So I think back eventually, this idea of closure, you just need to say, yeah, it can be a meaningful closure, can be the thing of a meaningful narrative, of a narrative that makes sense to us around loss, that, that means something to us. But meaning and closure are, are exclusive of one another. If you find yourself putting a ton of a bow around an experience of loss, that may be real enough for you. There may have been a beginning, middle, and end. Um, but I just want to, that, that, that is something you generate, that you create. If you do, wanted to see things, you could look for, you could look at the same picture and see all the ways the thing didn't end, the way that my relationship to a deceased friend or a patient doesn't end when they die. Um, if we want to look, we'll see that there really isn't closure. That we make that up. We're the ones responsible for that. So we have the responsibility and the right to do so. Um, but it's not something you're not being right. If you don't feel closure, if you didn't get closure, I would suggest that's more you bumping up against a bigger truth than you being robbed of something. And one way or another, and this will be my final sentence on this one, at least for now, one way or another, the act of meaning, the act of making meaning for ourselves often comes up against a story, a a narrative. And just know that you're the one writing the story. You're the one writing the narrative. You can write in closure if you feel it, if you want it there, but you don't have to because it's not there unless you put it there. Uh, And the act of making meaning always has something to do with uh, speaking to regrets, things we wish had happened and didn't, things that we wish we had gotten that we didn't. We're always left, in in terms of our narrative of making meaning, we're always left to reconcile things outside of our control. And the absence of a natural closure is just one more of those things. coming 
song was by Chelsea Coleman felt good to include her music I mean I'll include her music wherever whenever I can I feel Anytime. that way about oh any place who in the, what in the excuse me <laughs> how did you get in here that song well I feel like I'm can speak more knowledgeably about that song okay <laughs> 
I might have some inside information. I was going to ask you to. I didn't want to watch you flounder. You know. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick, Jaina. Nick, how are you? Good. That song's called Now We Know the Dark. It's a new <laughs> song that she recorded mm. for uh, this big project called Telephone, this international arts project that just was released uh, this week. And um, it's, it's by one of my oldest friends, Nathan Langston, up in Seattle. He had this idea to start with a, a message, an artistic message, send it to a few artists, have them interpret it in their medium, and then keep doing that so it branched out to be all these little tendrils of this message and different, you know, paintings into music and sculpture, and then go back to go from really wide back to one message again, involving like, I think 500 artists or something. And Chelsea has a piece in there and I have a piece in there. And, uh, and, uh, it's a pretty good lesson in like, I don't know, ancestry and lineage, like how a thing can change in iterations and how, you know, a little, uh, bump of paint blob <laughs> can make <laughs> someone <laughs> write a whole poem about something that you didn't even intend or, you know, so, uh, you should all check that out. It's at uh, phonebook.gallery is the website. It's called uh, Telephone and International Art Project. And that's Chelsea Coleman's song, Now We Know the Dark. We'll put it in the, the old liner notes mm -hmm. for easy access. The reason, well, what I was going to say... Uh, <laughs> Nick. And that's tonight. That's today's <laughs> oh, episode. Yeah, and good night, everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, what I was going to say. say. <laughs> God damn it. What I was going to say is that I'm glad to hear all that. That's probably good to hear first. What I wanted to say is that I always love Chelsea's music and would include it whenever, wherever. But one of the funny places BJ Miller and I arrived at in that weird way that I described at the beginning of the episode is at a dinner where a community member, like this is something she does where she invites a ton of different people to dinner and she, her work is like holding that space, like making a lovely meal. And Chelsea and I went to dinner and BJ Miller was at that, that dinner. Mm. And at one point in the night, it just ended up being BJ, Chelsea and I in the living room of this woman's house and Chelsea just playing music in the dark to us and another one of the many mem many many memories i have of chelsea making a moment really powerfully special so it felt good to have a song from her and i know that project sounds unbelievably amazing and super glad to give it a shout out since both you two are in it but it just sounds cool anyway so yeah check the link out in the liner notes we got a review <laughs> we got a review on the podcast it's for the podcast but it's not it's not in the podcast app it's in etsy we got a podcast review this this uh review by allison danis d-a-n-i-s allison said five stars i'm in love with all of the art that comes from yg2d from the podcast to this lovely hanky there's these we have hankies you guys on etsy they they're very soft and absorbent and they say you're going to die on one corner and then in the other corner they say you're going to cry and she got one of those hankies in one of one of my drawings that i do and that we sell on etsy and she goes on to say we'll definitely have the hanky with me for the next podcast episode every single one makes me cry 
not from sadness, but from awe slash beauty. Thank you, exclamation point, end quote. We're like one of those big corporations like Sony that makes like motorcycles and speakers. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We make podcasts. We make you hankies. You can review it wherever you want to review it. We'll somehow connect it to we'll all find the things. It. Leave a review on Yelp. <laughs> we'll find it. Somebody said that actually. Someone shot me an email and they were talking about doing a feedback for the grief and healing workshop. And she said, I cannot wait to give you a really good review about grief and healing so you can post it on Yelp. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we should create a Yelp page. Yeah. Any other ways people can connect or support what we do, Nick, that you're feeling especially strong about this, this day? Oh, you know, um, I always like to think that if you just, uh, write to one person, uh, text them and say, check out this podcast, it's really useful to me. I like to think of the utility of some of these episodes, especially this one, I think is really good about people getting involved with grief work. Uh, the thing BJ said about not one not needing, uh, this myth of closure, you know, letting go of that myth of closure. Um, I think that's really applicable even outside of death and dying really just in, in the relationships in your life. I think this whole last year has been a lesson and maybe you won't get closure from everything, you know, maybe it doesn't all add up. And it's just really nice to hear someone say that in a really loving, plain way. But um, yes, yeah, so send a text to somebody and just say, you think you want closure? Check this out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, always, it's like a little bit of a threat. <laughs> You think you want closure? Listen to this. <laughs> Maybe that's a good breakup text. Yeah, I don't know. Totally. Yeah. Listen, no, it's kidding. over. Listen uh, to this episode. Don't don't break up via text. Yeah. Well, you can if you want. I mean, it is not the best way. I think we agree, but uh, don't include our podcast in it. <laughs> if that's what you're gonna, if that is how you're gonna break up with somebody, uh, Nick. Anything you want to get off your chest today? Last thing I wanted to ask you. Oh gosh. I <laughs> Oh whoa. Oh, I'm regretting it all. <laughs> regretting that question already. <laughs> uh, I just I just have such love and appreciation for the world and you know, I said this in a in a in a YG2D group meeting last week about this fear that you know, in the thawing of post-pandemic, like things might thaw that are not loving. You know, it might be some angry things, some ugly things might be thawed um, and just holding space for all of that stuff too. And um, for me, it's just going back to gratitude and appreciation for look where we are, look how far we've come. I, any of us in any way that you look at that, just look at what we have. Like, I'm so grateful. I've got a family and a home and, and, and a tea set and, you know, mm -hmm. a deck of tarot cards. Like, I'm just so grateful for everything and just holding that space in the, in this, what looks like a great thawing and which could be, could involve some anger and some vitriol coming out. I just want to remember the gratitude. So thanks for being my friend and thanks for this space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. I didn't expect that. <laughs> thanks, Nick. Mm -hmm. Love you. Yeah. Me too. On that note, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.